All right, now most of these either ors, they're a little bit trivial, right? It's just a little bit of fun. Um, And yet there's something in all of us that immediately latches on, didn't you? To one side or the other. If you were on team cats, you really wanted the cats to win, didn't you? And I feel sorry for you because cats are evil, but they're also a little bit cute. I'll give you that when they're not tearing up your furniture. Um, <laughs> but okay, so you, I mean, you latch onto one side, right? And automatically it becomes us versus them. Us versus them. You've been on this team for like three seconds and already you know that we are the better team and they are a bunch of losers who deserve what they're going to get, right? As soon as you get assigned to a new team though, that team becomes the best team. It's just natural. It's part of what's in our heads. Us versus them. Tribalism. It just goes. Now they're clearly no good, but we're going to win. We're going to show them how it's done. Okay, it's one thing to have an us versus them mentality when it's just games, right? But what about more substantial topics? How do we feel when we hear people talking about Democrats versus Republicans, right? Us versus them. What about pro-life versus pro-choice? You're starting to feel it already, aren't you? Capitalism versus democratic socialism. That's a big one recently. Uh Uh-huh. I see a couple of eyebrows moving there. What about something like Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter or All Lives Matter? Right? You can feel it. It doesn't take much. You can already feel your blood pressure going up a notch when you hear just these key words, just these titles, because there's so much in you behind these topics. You already know a lot about them. You already have a strong opinion about some of these. I guarantee you at least one of them, right? We could keep going. Homosexuality and the sanctity of marriage, women in ministry, Maybe uh, the physical age of the earth or whether or not hell is a physical place. Like these topics, they automatically put you into a category, a side, an us versus them. Well, this is week one of our newest series. It's called The World's Gone Mad. We are talking about anger and how it seems like the whole world is more and more angry, outraged, and intolerant of other viewpoints lately. In two weeks, we're going to have Jason, and his topic is going to be mad at me. Mad at me. And he'll talk about how sometimes we get angry just with ourselves. That anger is directed inward. Next week, we're going to have Hillary, and she's going to be talking mad at us. Mad at us. That's discussing how we have conflict and anger within our own communities. But today, my title is Mad at Them, as in us versus them. When we look at the world around us, there's a lot of reasons to be angry. And we, as Christ followers, are just as likely to join in the fray as the average Joe or Jane. We complain. We retweet, we share, 
our way right into the middle of the fight, finding our echo chambers and pushing away anyone on their side. So, I want to take a step back and I want to think about how we, if we claim to follow Jesus, how we should be behaving in this age of outrage. There's a lot of things in our world that might make us mad. I mean, I've certainly lost my temper a time or two, and I'm sure you have too. So, I want to consider this quote from Adam Stan- Andy Stanley. Never make a point at the expense of making a difference. Never make a point at the expense of making a difference. It's really easy to get focused on making points instead of differences, to make it about us versus them, especially when we get angry. If someone cuts you off on the belt line, it's easy to assume that person is just a jerk instead of assuming they're late for the biggest interview of their life or their wife's about to have a baby. When you read something online that's disrespectful to a belief that you hold dear, it's easy to start thinking of that person as the enemy rather than another person who's also struggling just to make sense out of the world you're both living in. It might be politics, religion, or sports teams, but the temptation to draw lines and sort everyone into categories that perpetuate tribalism is all around us. But this isn't how we are supposed to live. God doesn't call us to a life of division. Paul told the Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And that includes all of our old ways of living in the world, too. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Some translations say his representatives. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's a lot of words, but did you catch it? Did you catch the mission in those words? He has committed to us, committed to us the message of reconciliation, as though God were making his appeal through us. The message of reconciliation. Our relationship with the world comes down to this. And the mission always comes first. Always. Which means before we join in that argument, before we form ranks and show them who's right and who's wrong, we need to remember that our mission is not to win arguments. Our mission is to help people connect with God and with each other. And anything we say or do that inhibits that, that deters them from that connection, jeopardizes that mission. And that should at the very least make us pause. Never make a point at the expense of making a difference. 
So what does it mean to follow Jesus in this age of outrage? How do we fulfill our mission when the world's gone mad? When everyone's us versus them. Look in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. It says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. See, Paul is saying when it comes to our connection with the world, the people who aren't yet part of our Madison Church community, you and I need to make the most of every opportunity we find to reflect God's light and love towards them. To show them what grace looks like and feels like. Make the most of every opportunity. And this isn't just some happy little line to get you to be like happy with mediocre coffee or something like that. Uh, This isn't be happy with what you've got and stop complaining. Make the most of every opportunity means recognizing that your time here is limited. Your resources are limited and you need to act now and maximize the little bit of a chance that you have. It's far more active. It's like, remember a few years back when they told us they were discontinuing Twinkies, right? Do you remember this? It was 2012. Hostess was going bankrupt, which meant Twinkies would be gone forever. Well, except if you know Twinkies, you know they're basically made of styrofoam and have a shelf life longer than the heat death of the universe. But they were being discontinued. And so the people who loved Twinkies knew they had to act fast. Everyone started stockpiling any Twinkies they could find. Right? Do you remember this? So how many cases do you still have left in your stockpiles? What, you've already gone through them all? Wait, no, 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 no. You're telling me that you didn't actually stockpile Twinkies? I mean... You guys, okay, okay. Um, Well, my point is this. Uh, What if we saw the opportunity to help people connect with God and each other the same way apparently no one else in this room saw the Twinkie opportunity with that same intensity? Because there are opportunities in front of us every day. How can you make the most of those opportunities instead of letting them slip away, like you did the Twinkies. Well, Paul doesn't just say to make the most of opportunities. He also says to make sure your conversations are stuffed with a sweet, creamy filling of grace. How many of us are willing to admit that we, at times, have been lacking in the grace department? I was there just this week at work when I had a meeting that got blown off twice in the same day by the same person. We had a meeting. They didn't make it, so they rescheduled for later. They didn't make it again, right? I got irritated. I got short. I said, you know what? Just forget about it. But then I found out, you know, they'd been stuck with a difficult client for hours and then stuck in traffic, and then they had turned it into a migraine. So, 
yeah, I felt pretty bad. But what would it look like if we were consistently praying, God, help me be so full of grace in every conversation today that it overflows into the lives of my friends and coworkers? What would it look like? If all of God's children started praying that prayer, I imagine that Facebook would see a lot more positive posts and Twitter may go out of business. So what else does Paul say? He says, we should be salty. Have you ever put your salt on Twinkies? It really brings out the flavor. It's almost as good as deep frying them. He says we should be seasoned with salt. But what does that mean? Does he mean you should literally start bathing in salt water brine? I mean, imagine what that would do for your complexion. I mean, in our current society, if I tell you the guy in the next desk was being salty, what does that sound like to you? It's like he's being irritating, right? Right? That's what we interpret salty to be. We think about rubbing salt into an open wound. That's what we think of as salty. Salty people might be like angry, agitated, upset, or mean, or annoying, or even repulsive, uh, according to Urban Dictionary. But is that what Paul is telling the church of Colossae? You should be mean and irritating? No. See, in rabbinic literature, which is to say Jewish teachings at the time when Paul was writing this, salt is used to refer to wisdom. Wisdom. He's saying, do for your conversations what salt does for your food. Bring out the best flavors. Preserve. Enhance. It's not about wit or having the right comeback at the right time, like we might interpret it now. It's about making the conversation better for everyone involved. As N.T. Wright says it, each questioner is an individual and must be respected and loved as such. If the answer is heard or felt as an oracular pronouncement or a rebuke for ignorance, the argument may be won, but the person lost. It's not about winning the argument or dominating the conversation. No one has ever argued another person into heaven. Am I right? Have you? Have you? Have you, have you ever argued somebody else into heaven? No. It doesn't work that way. We need to make the most of each opportunity to bring a different, better flavor into this outraged world. So instead of joining in on the madness... Instead of being outraged about everything, instead of drawing lines of us versus them, what if we took a different approach? Ed Stetzer says, I don't know that Christians can solve all the outrage issues. I think the culture has just turned up the volume to 11 and it's going all in on the outrage. So what I would say is we need to show a counterculture message. The gospel has always been countercultural. It's always shown a different way. When the world's running this way, the scriptures, te- the scriptures teach a different way. Jesus 
calls us to a better way. So, I think the better way is not to join in and turn up the outrage volume, but instead to enter in on a mission. There it is again. Remember, you're on a mission. Jesus calls us to a better way. Care less about making a point and more about making a difference. Make the most of each opportunity. What's the better way? Rather than joining the outrage trend, live counterculturally by embodying grace. Embody grace. Here's what I mean. To embody grace is to see and hear people through a lens of care, compassion, and genuine love. To embody grace means don't throw gas on the fire, but take the fuel away. To embody grace means to be Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. Be Jesus for them. Okay, but how do we do that? How do we go from receiving grace to embodying it? Let me break it down into three steps. Step number one, remember your identity. Remember your identity. Who are you? Who are you? You are a child of God. Even if you don't call yourself a Christian, you are still a child of God. And he wants to know you. Who are you? Child of God. That's right. When you find yourself in a situation or a conversation and you see that outrage starting to flare up, the first step is to remember your identity. You aren't defined by whether or not you win that argument. You're defined by who you are in Jesus. You are not the argument. You are not the issue. You are not your viewpoint. Your identity is in Christ, in what God says and knows about you. What does God say about you? He says, you're chosen. You're his child. You're a new creation. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're accepted. And you're his masterpiece. If you follow Jesus, your identity is right here in these words. This is your truth. And nothing can change that. Nothing at all. Nothing can separate you from it. You walk freely in grace, the grace of God. And when you remember that, it becomes the first step in helping you to embody grace to others. Step number two, find an affirmation, an affirmation. When you're in the heat of the moment, instead of immediately jumping in with your point, your perfect argument, or poking holes in theirs, try to find an affirmation about what the other person has just shared about their viewpoint. Proverbs says, 
A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. If I'm willing to set aside my need to win, if I can let go of the desire to prove my point, then I should be able to find something in the other person's perspective that I can affirm. Find common ground you can agree on. Most of our opinions share some aspects with those of our opposition. Some facets of truth are common between both sides of the argument. And even if it doesn't, even if you can't find something like that, even if every single thing you believe is completely opposite of what they believe, surely you can at least affirm the person. You can at least say something like, you know what? Regardless of how much we disagree, I really appreciate the thought that you put behind your argument. I really appreciate the effort you've put in to understanding this topic. You can affirm the person, even if you can't affirm the argument. A gentle answer turns away wrath. It helps us embody grace. And step number three, ask good questions. Ask good questions. I'm sure you are aware how hard it is to convince someone with an opposing view to change their mind. Have you ever managed it? Have you ever argued with someone so convincingly that they actually gave up and changed what they believe? I imagine I know the answer to that one. So instead of heading down that path, and pitting yourself against them. What if you took a posture of learning instead? What if you set out to understand why that person believes it so strongly? What is it? What if you tried to really grasp what they think, what they really believe? I'm not saying you shouldn't have your own beliefs or give them up to avoid an argument. We just got done talking a few weeks ago about how we shouldn't avoid conflict just to be peacemakers. But instead of making it explosive and no one listening to anything the other person says, except to find holes to poke in their argument, what if we really truly sought to see both sides? Asking good questions shows others your willingness to learn to understand, even though you don't agree. Most importantly, it shows that person you're trying to connect with them, to know them, to understand them. That you see them as another human being, another child of God, worthy of respect. What kind of questions could you ask? What brought you to this conclusion? What evidence have you considered? What experiences have helped you see it this way? Did someone teach it to you? And what else might you have learned from that person? What brings you the most joy because of this belief? Have you changed your behavior now that you believe this way about the world? How has this belief 
helped you? How has it changed how you see the world? Do you treat others differently now that you believe this way? You're not asking these to prove a point. You're not trying to show the flaw in their plan or in their, their concept. You're taking the opportunity to get to know them and why they believe what they believe or feel the way they feel. Now, if they ask you questions in return, respond as Peter teaches us, with gentleness and respect. If they don't ask for your opinion, if they don't want to understand your perspective, you know what? It's okay not to respond. It's okay to let it go. Remember that you don't have to win that argument. You don't have to prove your point, especially at the cost of making a difference in their lives. The mission comes first. And if we don't have gentleness and respect, then you're not helping anyone connect with God or each other. So, remember who you are in Christ. Start with an affirmation and follow up with good, gentle, respectful questions. Our world is in desperate need of people who will embody grace. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called not only to embrace the grace that you have received, the grace given to you by God, but to show the world that grace in return. Jesus called us to a better way. Paul told us, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So when we embody grace, when you refuse to add fuel to the outrage fires, we start to look different from the world around us. We're leading a questionable life. We're shining out in the darkness. We become the salty flavor on the Twinkie. We help people connect with God and with each other. And when we're doing that, our words aren't just making a point. They're making a difference.